I want to tell you the story of a woman who used her extraordinary power of communication to expose the weaponization of women's mental health. Her name is Elizabeth Packard. She lived in the Midwest and was committed to an asylum for the insane by her husband. So soon after waking up one morning in 1860, the 40-year-old mother of six was ambushed by two doctors who broke into her room. They carried her to the train station, and Elizabeth knew exactly where she was going. Because her husband, Theophilus, had been threatening to commit her to an asylum for quite a while, and now he was finally making good on his promise. I'm Kristen, and this is Broadly Underestimated, the podcast dedicated to understanding the underestimated aspects of our lives. Every object, institution, historical event, even the most mundane, has its own revolutionary story. And it's often the underestimated women behind those stories that have shaped life as we know it today. I want to start out with a cold, hard legal fact. Back in 1860, married women like Elizabeth Packard were civilly dead. In the eyes of the law, their civil liberties were absorbed by their husbands. So as you may remember from the episode about Abigail Adams and Jane Franklin, Alicia from Civics and Coffee explained the concept of coverture, which meant that legally a woman fell under both the authority and protection of her husband. What this meant in practice was that everything a married woman owned earned and stood for politically was legally controlled by her spouse. So according to the law, husbands were stewards and caretakers of their wives, and married women were given a childlike status and weren't permitted to engage fully in business, society, or in politics. This sort of parental attitude toward women extended into other areas of life, and this also meant that they weren't really allowed control over their own health either. A while back in the Kitty Knox bicycle episode, I talked a bit about the social mores that women generally conform to during the Victorian period, so roughly from the 1830s to about 1900. I mentioned that women's mental health was pathologized relentlessly. So mental and emotional well-being was believed to have stemmed from the uterus, and that pesky organ was an unpredictable little demon. In fact, the word hysteria derives from the ancient Greek word for uterus. So signs of mental or emotional distress could mean that a woman's uterus was out of whack, which could then put a woman at societal risk if this uterus-motivated behavior was perceived as erratic by the wrong male guardian. It was a slippery slope, and a bit of unusual behavior was really all it took for a woman to fall into a gaslit prison of insanity. So let's talk examples. Quite some time ago, I came across an article that sent me reeling, and then, of course, directly into a rabbit hole. In the annual report of an asylum in Massachusetts, it showed that in 1898, 110 women were admitted, while at the same time, there were only 35 new male patients. Now, I knew that mental health diagnoses and treatments have and often continue to be biased against women, but I wanted to understand more about what concepts and factors played into such a heightened discrepancy between perceptions of mental illness between genders, and boy was I in for it. So naturally, I read the asylum's annual report for 1898, and here's what I found. There were many reasons that men and women could be diagnosed as insane, like senility, ill health, melancholy, being overworked, and even epilepsy. But there were so many extra special reasons that seemed set aside just for women. And those were menopause, disappointment in love, domestic troubles, religious excitement, and worry. And in the case of some asylums I've read about, 
novel reading. So, of course, by this standard, I and most of you listening to this podcast would probably be clear candidates for admittance. I also found that, in a way, the patients were responsible for keeping the asylum running. In some cases, patients' families were responsible for paying living expenses to the asylum, and state asylums were often subsidized by the government, but they were also often these self-sustained sort of villages with in-house farming and textile production. Officially, the aim of putting the patients to work was to give them a sense of purpose and also to give them some semblance of the life they were used to outside of the asylum walls. So this was generally considered to be part of the healing process. But as is the case with many officially well-intentioned concepts, we often find that they were abused. And that is exactly what happened in at least some asylums. But more on this later. But I was still stumped by the discrepancy in this annual report. What could have happened that year to cause so many women to be committed to the asylum? Were the women especially anxious about the U.S. declaration of war on Spain? Were they traumatized by the sinking of the SS Portland and the death of almost 200 passengers on board? I mean, it's possible, but I think what's more likely is that women who didn't get along with their husbands, or who were a bit bummed about a breakup, or who were going through a perfectly natural process called menopause, or who had unconventional religious beliefs or pushed back against oppressive religious norms, were all slapped with a label of insanity. And this is exactly what happened to Elizabeth Packard. Now, I want to preface what you're about to hear by saying that Elizabeth's story is a saga. Just when you think it's over, another chapter begins that is even more bizarre than the last. So buckle up. So this whole ordeal essentially started for Elizabeth when her religious views began to deviate from her husband's. Theophilus was a pastor in a Presbyterian church, and unbeknownst to Elizabeth, he was in serious debt, and so he had received a substantial donation for a new church building. But the donation came with conditions. The church had been part of the new school belief system, which was in strong support of abolition. However, this donor was very motivated to maintain the status quo, and therefore, his donation meant that the church should also. And so suddenly the church switched from the new school to the old school, which was more conservative and refused to take a stance on abolition. Among other religious principles, Elizabeth staunchly defended abolition, and in a Bible class that she regularly ran, she publicly held to this belief, which, of course, was a problem if Theophilus wanted to keep his new donor happy. Now, Elizabeth had always been known for her eloquent and persuasive talents for communication. She was a gifted speaker and writer, and she easily held a captive audience when she communicated her ideas. Theophilus, on the other hand, was not quite as enticing a speaker, and Elizabeth's ideas were not only stealing his thunder, but they were counteracting the new direction he was taking the church in. Now, the couple had always been different. They got married in 1839, when Elizabeth was just 22 years old, and Theophilus was 37. Their courtship had been anything but magical, but Elizabeth finally married Theophilus to please her father, who had been his longtime colleague. For many years, Elizabeth took on the role of supportive wife, until the 1848 Women's Rights Convention opened a national conversation on women's rights. This conversation profoundly changed the way that Elizabeth operated in her marriage, and the fact that she asserted her right to her own autonomy and opinions started to crack the foundations of their relationship. And by June 18, 1860, in reaction to Elizabeth's more assertive behavior, Theophilus had at times cut her off from her friends, he'd confiscated her mail, and forbade access to her own money. And he had even commented on her, quote, becoming insane on the subject of women's rights. 
In the months leading up to this day, he had threatened to commit her to an asylum if she didn't conform to more appropriate feminine conduct. But she refused. So when two doctors broke into her bedroom, it couldn't have been a massive mystery what they were after. Elizabeth was caught between a bit of a rock and a hard place, knowing that if she protested them too wildly, it would be seen as additional evidence of her insanity. But at the same time, she wasn't willing to make things easy for them. So her compromise was to gracefully require them to carry her to the train station. She wasn't about to walk there herself. So in front of a crowd of friends and neighbors, some of which had signed a petition Theophilus had sent around asserting that Elizabeth was insane, she boarded a train bound for the asylum. Now, one of the many hypocrisies of Victorian asylums is that they were often gorgeous on the outside, but of course, the physical and social dynamics inside could often be described as hellish. In fact, asylum tourism was a fairly common activity. People would go to asylums to walk the gorgeous grounds and to catch a glimpse of the, quote, insane people living there, like watching animals in a zoo. The asylum in Jacksonville, Illinois, was similar in this regard. It had very nice grounds, and the interior of the seventh ward, where Elizabeth would be staying, was comfortable enough. But other wards were absolutely hostile and filthy, as she would later find out. So I'd like to take a second to talk about the patronizing nature of mental health care during this period. The operating theory for both diagnosis and treatment was subjective at best and sinister at worst. In Elizabeth's case, her doctor seemed to be in some weird place in the middle. When Elizabeth arrived at the Jacksonville Asylum, she was first briefly assessed by a young doctor, then admitted to the seventh ward, where she found a number of women of similar background and social class. They ranged from young to older women, single and married, mothers and women without children. And a significant number of them had no legitimate mental health concerns at all. When speaking to doctors and staff, Elizabeth, of course, insisted on her sanity, and all of her actions fell in line with the Victorian concept of being sane, which essentially meant that she didn't deviate from a fairly calm way of being. Now, unfortunately, her father and her two brothers had supported her being committed to the asylum. They were clearly influenced by Theophilus, and her sons weren't yet old enough to wield any legal influence. These men in her life were the only ones who could control her destiny because, again, legally, her own desires and assertions certainly weren't worth anything. And so she was stuck. So Elizabeth found herself settling into life essentially as an inmate. The seventh ward was clean, it had decorations on the walls, and had places for the women there to gather. While getting her bearings, Elizabeth spoke with other patients in the ward and found that a number of them were in the same situation she was. Their husbands had committed them for illegitimate reasons. She began developing friendships, and since she was an expert seamstress, she got to work sewing clothing and bedding for the asylum as part of her industrial therapy. Elizabeth missed her children desperately. Her youngest, Arthur, was just a toddler, Samuel was a little boy, and Libby was 10 or 11 years old, and the older boys still hadn't reached adulthood. They still needed their mother, and she worried about them constantly, and all she wanted was to get back to them. So Dr. McFarland was the superintendent of the asylum and would treat Elizabeth throughout her time there. And their first encounters were actually surprisingly pleasant. Elizabeth admired the doctor's intelligence and they had really engaging conversations to the point where soon after her arrival, McFarland actually told Elizabeth that she wouldn't be in the asylum long and she was given a set of keys to the building she was staying in. She essentially came and went from the building to the grounds as she liked, so this doesn't seem like something a hospital staff would allow if they were really concerned about any, quote, insane or erratic behavior. And about a month after she was admitted, McFarland actually told Elizabeth she could go home, but on one condition. 
that she agreed to submit to being obedient to Theophilus. Now, I would love to know what was going through her mind at that moment, but I can only imagine there were questions like, how could she return to a husband who had committed her to a place like this, especially knowing that she was perfectly sane? He had taken her from her children and her life. He had exerted every inch of power over her that the law had allowed with complete disregard for her needs or feelings. So how could she subject herself again to a tyrant? And so, to her doctor's shock, Elizabeth refused. She dug her heels in, knowing that life with Theophilus wouldn't be freedom at all. She was just as well off living in the asylum than with a husband who exerted emotional and mental control over her. So she began living in a sort of limbo where, for a period of time, her freedom actually depended on her decision alone. She tried to reason with Dr. McFarland, explaining that going back to her husband would be its own kind of prison. But the doctor would not grant Elizabeth her independence. It seemed to Elizabeth that over the time she had spent at the asylum, she'd proven her sanity. So why she wouldn't be granted her freedom on her own without the contingency of her return to her husband seemed asinine. Before arriving at the asylum, she'd certainly felt and understood the injustice and the control that men wielded over her life. But now she was seeing this play out on a large scale right in front of her. The women she spoke to in the asylum had similar experiences, and they were also patronized by the doctor. She knew what it was that had gotten her committed to the asylum, and it wasn't insanity. It was the assertion of opinions that deviated from her husband's. And as Elizabeth later wrote, quote, In many cases, it was not insanity, but individuality that caused women to be committed, end quote. Because the asylum was a holding pen for women who didn't conform. Elizabeth lingered like this for months, desperately asserting her sanity with no results. So after four months of being imprisoned at the asylum, she did the only thing she could think to do. She put a defense of her sanity in writing. She insisted that she had entered the asylum as a sane woman and that she remained a sane woman. She asserted her desire to leave the asylum as an independent person, unencumbered by her abusive relationship with her husband. He had been a, quote, perverted and unnatural man, and she had no inclination to continue living under his control. She even asked for a job at the asylum to demonstrate that she was ready and willing to support herself apart from her husband. Now, McFarland had spent the previous four months searching for signs of insanity in Elizabeth and had consistently come up empty-handed. But now, the unladylike way that Elizabeth had referred to her husband was a shoe-in for insanity. Because, in case you weren't aware, female insanity occurred when a woman's love changed to hate. Elizabeth had unknowingly written her own ticket for an extended stay at the asylum. So when McFarland failed to even mention her written declaration, she decided to write another letter. And this time, it was a rebuke of the doctor himself for essentially abetting her husband and keeping her in the asylum unjustly. She criticized his ineffective methods for diagnosing and treating patients, the poor treatment of the women there, and the fact that so many of the patients there didn't have mental health issues at all. And so she called on the doctor to change his ways. And I'm sure you can see where this is going. Now, added to this complication was the pesky fact that Elizabeth was such a brilliant communicator and a generally likable person. She had developed friendships with both patients and staff members. She had started a prayer circle for herself and some of the women in the Seventh Ward. And essentially, the hospital administration was becoming concerned about the amount of influence she had over the other patients. 
This prayer circle had become a space for these women to air their grievances and to mourn the loss of their families and children, and also to bolster each other up about the real reasons they were stuck in the asylum, which was, of course, the lack of legal and social control over their own destinies. Now, behind the scenes, Elizabeth had been assessed for what's called moral insanity, which really just boils down to eccentric behavior. And in the female emotion-phobic Victorian United States, this was an extremely narrow line to walk. If a woman was deemed overly upset or passionate or angry or just weird, she was earning herself a one-way ticket to an asylum. And to be clear, these entrances really often were one-way. Some of these women were, of course, released if they somehow met the nebulous standards of the doctors that were treating them. But many of these women were swallowed whole by asylum systems that cut them off from communication with their friends and families and that turned their voices and insistence of sanity into friendly fire against themselves. In fact, in many cases, the isolation and complete control of the asylums seemed to create mental health issues where there hadn't been any before. So soon after demanding that the doctor change his approach, Elizabeth was suddenly transferred to the 8th ward, where she would find an even worse experience than she had just left. While she was living in the 7th ward, she'd had her own room and access to her own belongings, but there would be none of that in the 8th ward. Her new room was a shared dormitory with many other women. And these women, whether through prior circumstances before arriving at the asylum or because of the asylum itself, were visibly struggling with their mental health. Some were violent and others had spontaneous outbursts day and night, but they were all caked with dirt and their beds and room were filthy. And when the attendant left Elizabeth in this room for the first time, the door was locked behind her. The first night that Elizabeth spent in that room was an unsettling one. She was clearly in a more uncomfortable setting, but also she would have wondered what this meant for her ability to leave the asylum. She stayed up through the night coming to terms with her new surroundings, and she became determined to be useful and to help the women around her in whatever way she could. Elizabeth was a stickler for hygiene and had a sponge bath every morning, so her first morning in the 8th ward, she got up early, bathed herself, and then began bathing her roommates. The process took hours, and by the time the attendants entered the room, she had already made a visible difference in the appearance of her fellow patients. She then took on cleaning the room and refreshing the bedding. But though Elizabeth visibly improved her living conditions, it still didn't change the fact that the place itself was a violent prison. The patients themselves could be violent with one another, throwing objects in the room throughout the night. Some lunged at each other in the attendance, and sometimes violence broke out in the dining hall with the knives they were only allowed access to at mealtimes. But some members of staff were notoriously brutal in their treatment of the patients. Beatings, solitary confinement, and straitjackets were routine. Before Elizabeth had arrived in the 8th Ward, there were no bathtubs for the patients. Elizabeth pushed for this basic level of hygiene and dignity, but once the bathtubs arrived, they actually became just another tool of violence. The bathroom was right across the hall from Elizabeth's dormitory, and throughout the day and night, she would hear the repeated near-drowning of unruly patients as they were dunked under the water until they convulsed and then brought back to the surface to spit up the water they'd just ingested. As time went on, the Civil War would cause staffing shortages, which would only exacerbate the foul treatment of patients. The asylum was forced to take whoever they could get, so a small, sometimes underqualified and overwhelmed staff chronically abused the patients. 
There was even one particularly cruel attendant who would later become infamous for her terrible treatment of patients. She would beat them brutally with whatever was at her disposal, including a ring of keys she kept at her side. To be clear, there were kind and caring staff members who sincerely tried to look after the patients at the asylum, and Elizabeth developed friendships with many of them, but unfortunately, there were enough members of staff who treated the patients with cruelty that many of them lived in fear. As part of Elizabeth's banishment to the Eighth Ward, all of her belongings had been taken from her, including her beloved pen and paper, which was really her main emotional outlet. The staff had been specifically instructed not to allow her to have any paper. Elizabeth begged Dr. McFarland to let her leave the Eighth Ward, but when she spoke to him about it, he would turn and walk away from her without even acknowledging what she'd requested. Now, this transfer to the Eighth Ward was a clear message to Elizabeth that Dr. McFarland was not her sincere ally, but really her manipulator. Unbeknownst to Elizabeth, the treatment methods of the time were to encourage a very close and trusting doctor-patient relationship in order for the doctor to be able to positively influence the patient. Now, in practice, this would often boil down to and manifest as manipulation. Patients would pour their hearts out to the doctors they came to trust and who they understood to be their ally, when in reality, the doctor was getting close to the patient to suss out any evidence of insanity. In sharing their innermost thoughts and opinions with the doctor, the patients were handing him the keys to lock them up in the asylum with. But although her words to Dr. McFarland had backfired on her, it had still become clear to Elizabeth that her words and her writing were the only way she would be able to leave this place. Her husband wanted to keep her there, and Dr. McFarland was clearly not going to let her go. But if she could get word out about her story, then maybe, just maybe, she'd have a shot at getting out. And if she could expose both her sanity and the injustice that was happening at the asylum, she could not only change things for herself, but for the other women who were caught in this insidious web. And so she began secretly journaling her experiences. She'd made friends with some of the attendants, and through a combination of her ingenuity and her relationships with the staff, she'd procured a pen and some paper. She recorded the horrible physical abuses she'd witnessed, the beatings, the near drownings, the unsanitary and uncomfortable conditions, the ineffective medical treatment, and a doctor who admitted patients based on hearsay alone. She recorded all of these things on strips of paper that she sewed into the lining of her clothes to keep hidden in case of an inspection. And so she continued this way for another year. And by June of 1862, two years after she'd been committed to the asylum, Elizabeth made her first attempt to publicly expose what was going on there. She'd made friends with the cooks, Celia and James Coe, and as they were planning to resign their positions at the asylum, they felt compelled to expose all the wrongdoings there. So they agreed to smuggle a letter written by Elizabeth to the editor of the New York Independent newspaper. Now, Elizabeth wrote the letter, but she put it under the Coes' names because, let's face it, a letter from a woman deemed to be insane would probably be disregarded. And so, filled with hope, Elizabeth sent the letter off with the Coes, optimistic it might make some change. She waited and waited for some kind of a response, but ultimately, the letter was never published. But Elizabeth remained persistent. Over and over again, she would show an incredible ability to draw from an astounding reservoir of sheer hope and will. When she was admitted to the asylum, she made the most of it, developing friendships with those around her. And when she was transferred to the harsh conditions of the Eighth Ward, Elizabeth focused any sort of depression or desperation she might have had into improving her surroundings and helping the patients around her. 
And so Elizabeth continued to insist on her sanity. In her conversations and letters exchanged with Dr. McFarland, she asserted that she was completely clear-headed and challenged the doctor to explain why she was still at the asylum. Unfortunately, this got her nowhere. McFarland continued to patronize her. He withheld information and was non-responsive to her insistence that she was sane. And ever fearful of her influence over the other patients, he would, at times, cut her off from the friendship she'd developed. He was cruel and dismissive. And so there arrived a point at which Elizabeth decided on a less aggressive approach. If she couldn't get the doctor on her side through truth and directness, she would try to butter him up. She began sliding back into the rapport the two had at the beginning of her time at the asylum when she believed that McFarland was her ally. She cultivated that comfort with which they'd conversed in the past, and once their relationship became more smooth, Elizabeth requested that she be able to meet with the trustees of the asylum herself to attest to her sanity. And somehow, the doctor agreed. Now, leading up to the trustees' meeting, Elizabeth had prepared herself. She'd written a statement that she'd gotten approval for from Dr. McFarland. The days must have felt like an eternity, as she waited for a chance to fight for her own freedom. When the day of the trustees' meeting finally came in September of 1862, Elizabeth found that Theophilus had been invited to attend. As Elizabeth stood in front of all of these men who held complete power over her life, she first talked about the religious differences between herself and her husband. This pre-approved statement was about Theophilus refusing to allow her the freedom of her religious beliefs because they differed from his. It was all very straightforward and prescribed. But then, Elizabeth pulled a fast one on them, and she took out a second statement that the doctor hadn't seen yet. And in this message, she took Theophilus's reasoning for having her committed, which was because of her deranged religious fever being a dangerous influence on her children, and turned it right back on him. She said, quote, I conscientiously believe that the legitimate tendency of Mr. Packard's creed is to make hard, unfeeling, bigoted, cruel, tyrannical characters like himself. And now, out of regard for these helpless children's interest, I demand that you take Mr. Packard from his position in society, his family, and from all his constitutional rights as an American citizen, and imprison him in this insane asylum for life, or until I can remove his children out of the reach of his influence. How would you receive such a demand from me, the mother of the children, whose interest in their welfare is as deep, at least, as their father's. Would you not regard it as an insane request, and would you not employ it as a proof that I was a fit subject for the insane asylum? Now, how can you listen to this same demand involving precisely the same principle and urge it as a reason to justify you in perpetuating my imprisonment based on the same principle? End quote. Mic drop. Now, after this, the trustees actually asked Elizabeth questions. They wanted to know more about her case. And so Elizabeth laid out the truth of her predicament. She described Theophilus's plot to have her committed, and when she finished, she was asked to leave the room and sit outside. This was Theophilus's chance to make his case against Elizabeth. She couldn't make out what the men discussed, but at times she could hear them laughing, and she wasn't sure what to make of it. And when the doctor exited the room, he informed Elizabeth that a decision would be announced at the next trustees meeting in December. Elizabeth waited in agony for the next three months, only to find that the decision had been postponed yet again. Finally, at their next meeting in March of 1863, after almost three years in the asylum, the trustees announced that Elizabeth could be released after June 19th. 
Now, Elizabeth was, of course, ecstatic that she would finally be able to leave the asylum. She thought that improving her sanity, she'd secured her own release. But what she didn't know was that McFarland had recommended Elizabeth's release, but not because he thought she was sane, because he thought she was both incurably insane and that she was just too much trouble to have around. McFarland signed a certificate of insanity for Theophilus and washed his hands of Elizabeth. With the delayed release, Elizabeth was afraid that the extra time was actually just to allow Theophilus more time to get his ducks in a row, in order to get her committed to a different asylum immediately after she was released. So when Theophilus showed up at the asylum on June 17, 1863, she was both exhilarated and terrified. They boarded a train to an unknown destination, but to Elizabeth's relief, when they arrived, it was to the home of Elizabeth's friend Angeline Fields. Theophilus had granted her freedom under one condition, that she never return home again. Elizabeth stayed with her friend Angeline for a while, getting back into the rhythm of life and simultaneously garnering the sympathy and support of the community as she shared her story with them. In fact, they were so moved by her experience that they gave donations to pay for her return trip to her children and to cover any potential legal costs she could run into if she had any trouble with her husband. And so Elizabeth returned home to a very surprised Theophilus and to her children. Her youngest Arthur had been a toddler when she'd been forced into the asylum. Her daughter Libby was now 14 years old, and in the three years while Elizabeth had been gone, Theophilus had expected her to take on all of her mother's responsibilities, the cooking, the cleaning, and keeping the house. It had been too much for the little girl, and it showed. Her son Samuel had been the most vulnerable to his father's messaging about Elizabeth's insanity, and he sided with his father. He mostly kept his distance from Elizabeth. The two oldest boys, Isaac and Toffee, had remained loyal to their mother, but hadn't been old enough to take any legal action to take care of her. Toffee had actually visited Elizabeth a couple of times in the asylum, but they hadn't been able to spend much time together. At this point, Elizabeth's goal was to keep things civil with Theophilus in order to remain with her children, and things went well for quite a while, until one November day when the house keys disappeared. Theophilus accused Elizabeth of stealing them and locked her up in the nursery. He then hammered boards over the windows. He didn't allow her to join the family for meals or to see her friends, and he kept her mail from her. So Theophilus was concerned about the power Elizabeth might have with the control over those keys. He wrote to Dr. McFarland to request that she be readmitted, but the trustees refused to readmit her. Into the winter, Theophilus kept Elizabeth locked up in that nursery. It was a historically cold winter, and he wouldn't even allow her a fire to warm herself. Now, if we rewind a bit, we'd find out that Elizabeth actually had taken the keys, but she wasn't planning to lock Theophilus out of the house. She'd buried the keys to ensure that he would get angry and lock her up. And once he did, she got a friend who spoke to her through the gaps in the boards over the window to help her begin a legal proceeding for habeas corpus, which requires that a person being held prisoner be brought before a judge for a trial. You see, Elizabeth had come across some of Theophilus's paperwork a while back and had uncovered a plot to commit her to an asylum yet again. But this time, he wanted to send her to a state hospital in Massachusetts, which was notoriously much worse than the Jacksonville Asylum. So unlike last time, Elizabeth was two steps ahead of Theophilus, and this time she would get a trial. 
The trial itself consisted of day after day of testimony vouching for both Elizabeth's sanity as well as her insanity. The audience and the jury must have felt a bit of whiplash, listening to one doctor declare Elizabeth's complete insanity while the next doctor declared that Elizabeth had one of the greatest minds the world had ever known. A key piece of evidence was in the hypocritical fact that at the exact moment when Theophilus had locked Elizabeth away in the nursery and tried to get her committed once more, he apparently thought she was sane enough to sign a legal document that allowed him to sell a piece of land. Now, as we can see, Elizabeth had really planned ahead on this trial. She'd plotted her own imprisonment in order to get the trial in the first place, and she definitely had a lot of practice defending her own sanity. But another duck that Elizabeth had put in a row for herself was to get her original Bible class essays back from Theophilus. These documents were one of the main reasons that her husband had declared her insanity in the first place. Supposedly, they proved her to be an erratic religious fanatic. Of course, Elizabeth knew better, and she knew that if she could get her hands on the essays to present at trial, she could prove that her views and writings had always been perfectly reasonable. And so she'd leveraged her signature on those property sale documents in exchange for Theophilus giving her essays back. Now, the fact that Theophilus had thought that Elizabeth was sane enough to sign a legal document was an important piece of evidence. But perhaps the most powerful testament to her sanity was Elizabeth herself. As we've seen with Elizabeth's experience in her Bible study class and over her years in the asylum, Elizabeth had always been a persuasive, if not mesmerizing, speaker. And remember that in 1864, women speaking in public was not a common thing. So to see Elizabeth confidently speaking her piece was not only captivating, but a bit of a novelty. So on that day in the courtroom in 1864, she stood in front of the jury in the court and read her Bible class essay entitled, How Godliness is Profitable. At the heart of the essay was Elizabeth's view that the level of a person's faith didn't actually affect their material wealth. She did argue, however, that godliness would affect happiness in both this life and the next. Elizabeth's viewpoints resonated with the people in the courtroom. Her arguments were, in fact, not insane, but perfectly reasonable. By the end of the trial, Theophilus had stopped showing up to court. As Elizabeth waited for the jury's verdict, she knew that if she was found insane, she would be taken immediately to an asylum. And this time, there would be no getting out. It had been almost five years since Theophilus had originally had her committed to the Jacksonville Asylum, and the entire period had been one big fight for her life and for her mind. The jury deliberated late into the evening after the last day of the trial proceedings, but the next day, they only deliberated for seven minutes. Such a quick verdict was frightening after so many days of court and so many testimonies. The verdict read, We, the undersigned jurors in the case of Mrs. Elizabeth P.W. Packard, alleged to be insane, having heard the evidence in the case, are satisfied that said Elizabeth P.W. Packard is sane. Cheers erupted in the courthouse. For almost five years, Elizabeth's life had been a fight for her sanity, and now, finally, the courtroom, her community, and the law had recognized her as sane. With this ruling, she was no longer in jeopardy of being committed by her husband. She could live without fear, and this case could be used as a precedent for other women who were labeled as insane. It was a transcendent victory. Now, Theophilus wasn't in court that day. It seems to me that he knew which way this case was probably going, but as Elizabeth was leaving the courtroom, a letter from her husband was handed to her. In it, he told her that he had taken the children to Massachusetts. 
As I said before, Elizabeth's story is a saga, and this auspicious day that seemed would end all of her troubles turned out to only be a step in her struggle. Tune into the next episode in this series to find out how Elizabeth fought for her children, herself, and for the rights of married women and those with mental illness across the United States. And now, it's time for a segment I call The Stacks. Doing research is one of my favorite things to do. The more you learn, the more the puzzle pieces of the world start to come together. So I want to take you into the stacks of the library with me to share favorites of the books, documentaries, movies, interviews that I think you would enjoy if you want to learn more about this topic. The Woman They Could Not Silence by Kate Moore is a powerful and detailed narrative of Elizabeth Packard's life. Moore goes into great depth about Elizabeth's life and about this incredible saga and the sheer hope and will that Elizabeth demonstrated to get herself through such a difficult experience at the asylum and the legal and familial upheaval in her life for years afterward. Moore is a fantastic writer and researcher, and I highly recommend this book. Thanks so much for listening. Please be sure to rate and review the podcast and connect with me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Woman in Time. And we'll see you next time on Broadly Underestimated.